0: well good morning everyone i tell you i was doing great till tj started singing then i was getting all weepy out over there my nose starts running i tell you that is something tj god bless you buddy I t- nathan is right about him worshiping he'll be back there just a singing along worshiping with nathan all the time and uh it's just remarkable how he loves the lord as for those of you who may be visiting with us, um, you may be puzzled by the announcement about a search committee, but I'm retiring whenever we can find somebody, so just in, so that you know that, um, and they're not running me off, I'm just retiring, okay, so just so that you're aware of what's going on with that. You know, when I was first, um, started feeling the urge, I guess we would call it, uh, the conviction to go to Bible college, this was back in the early 70s, and I've told you many times my testimony, but during that time, I began to ask questions, uh, you know, like uh, asking of myself, it's like, okay, why do I want to go to Bible college? I cannot speak in public. Uh, the most of that I would ever done and was doing at that point was teaching a little junior high boys Sunday school class, and they were about to drive me crazy, but I, uh, I was not a public speaker. I wasn't a very good teacher. And I certainly wasn't a preacher. I didn't want to get up in front of anybody because I was horrified of the even the thought of it. Then I began to ask myself, okay, what are you going to do after that? Are you going to go to seminary? I thought, man, I don't want to go to seminary. I can't see myself doing that. What I really would like to do is maybe go to Bible college and get some answers to some questions I've always had because my church and my pastor wasn't able to answer them for me to my satisfaction. I thought, well, it would be a good time to go. We're young and We only have one little child, and we were uh, both open to going, so we thought, well, we'll go, and we'll stay for a while, and we'll learn as much as we can, and uh, then we'll come back home and just, you know, get a job and continue teaching in church and doing whatever we can do. So we went, and the year was 1975. As time went on and the years passed by, things began to change because what God began to do with me is he began to give me a desire to teach and a desire to preach that I'd never had before. And it scared me to death because I wanted to do it, but you're scared to death to even try. Now, I did do that. And as it turned out, there was an opportunity while I was there in Florida, I was in Bible college there in Florida, that a small church needed a pastor and they asked me to come and help them out. And there were basically about 30 people. And we met in a home that had been renovated and made into a large room where people could meet and we gathered there and i and I went through teaching and preaching and learning and failing and learning what not to do and things and It was a good experience for me, but it began to show me very quickly that i wasn 't ready for that, and I needed some more instruction in different areas and so we decided to go to seminary Seminary was a place I never thought i'd find myself, but we did and Well, after that, I graduated there in 87 and began working in churches and ultimately ended up here at at Dogwood. It's been an exciting journey. I, I just marvel as I look back over the years and reflect of what God has done in my life and in my family. I ask myself quite often, what if I had been okay and settled with the idea that this will never work? What if I had said, okay, I'm scared to death to do anything. I don't see myself pursuing that, so I'm just going to stay in North Carolina, stay there, get a job, and, and don't go anywhere and don't do anything. And then I think, you know, look at all I would have missed. You look at the the not only the education and class, but the things that God has taught me over the years and how God has been able to use me in ways that I never imagined or never dreamed. And I think to myself, man, I, I thank God every day that I didn't just be content. I wasn't just content to stay there, that I followed that that yearning, that desire. Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you feel that there are things in your life that God is moving you to do. You know, he's convicting you in your spirit and you know that deep down in the, the depths of your soul that you want to do something, but you're not quite sure what it is, and it scares you to death to even think of it. Um, I've been there, and I want to encourage you to begin to look at it from a different perspective. Now Today what we're going to be doing is talking about that, and I'll clarify that a little bit more as we go along, but I'm going to be taking you to a passage of Scripture that deals with another miracle that jesus performed during his ministry now if you remember last week we talked about the miracle of him turning the water into wine and what the lesson was from that if you'll remember i told you that whenever you find miracles in the new testament when jesus is performing miracles that they were always done for a reason and that's the reason that they're recorded they're recorded so that you learn something last week we learned the truth that when jesus does something like turning the water to wine, that it's better than anything that could possibly have ever been there. In other words, whatever could have been uh, presented or drunk or um, consumed or whatever, it was better. And that goes through everything we do in life, that when Jesus does it, it's always better. And we've got to learn that lesson, begin to understand that doing it God's way is always going to end up better for you than not. But today, as we look at this, the lesson we're going to learn is taken right from the title of this message. And the title is this, and the lesson that I want to drive home is this, that God can do a lot with just a little. In other words, God can do a lot. And and, and as I opened this message with that story about myself, I look back at that and I think to myself, I didn't have a whole lot to offer God. Nothing, really. But when I look at what God has done with me through the years and how he's used me in people's lives, I marvel to see what God has done. And this is where we're going with this message today, is that whatever you have and whatever you possess, either monetarily or in gifts and abilities and time and situation, whatever, whatever it may be, that when you decide to present that to God and lay it in his hands, That God will take it and multiply it in ways that you've never imagined. And that you will be blessed in the long run for having done it. And that is my prayer that as I present this to you today, that you would give to the Lord what you have in every area of your life and that you would watch to see what he does. And I want to say this now because this is going to be repeated in various ways throughout this message And I I need for you to to understand this and grasp this, okay? I want you to remember that it is not about what you give him. It is not about that. It's not about your talents, your gifts, your abilities. It's not about any of that. It's not about what you give him. It's all about what he does with it. And see, that's the difference. We sit back scared and afraid and apprehensive about presenting to God or giving to God what we have to offer. Because we think that it's of no value, and it doesn't matter. It's not going to amount to much. And God says, no, give it to me anyway. And trust me to multiply it in ways that you can never imagine. That's the miraculous part of this and what God does and how he works in our lives. I want to take you to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's something that probably every one of us has been taught or heard in some form or fashion in our lives, and I just want to take you back through that. And I want to present it to you in a way in which maybe you're looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective. This is one of the most important, fantastic, remarkable miracles in the Bible. The reason for that is this, that when you look at the four different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four apostles were writing as from the, concerning the life of Christ from their perspective, in other words, the Spirit of God inspired them to write what they remembered as the Spirit of God worked in them, in the, the way they saw it. And when you put them all four together, you get a complete picture of the life of Christ. There may be things recorded in one that aren't recorded in another. It doesn't mean that if they're um, in, in conflict with one another. It just means that you take it all together to get the full picture. Now, the remarkable thing about this is that there are only two miracles in the New Testament that are recorded in all four accounts. The resurrection of Christ is one of them, and then this miracle here is the only other one that's recorded in all four Gospels. Now, why is that? Well, there must be something important here. There must be something, a lesson, something that God wanted the disciples to see and to understand, and also us as well. So as we read through this, don't read through it with your... Your same old mundane, you know, way of looking at Scripture that, oh, well, here we go again. I already know this because I've learned over the years that it doesn't matter what it is. Every time you read it and study it, you learn something different. That's what is so dynamic about the Bible. And so as we look through this today, I want you to look at it with some fresh eyes and try to understand, as I take you through this, the lesson that God wants you and me to understand as we look at this miracle that he performed. Jesus is out teaching and preaching on the side of the mountain like he always was, and it becomes late in the day, and here's what happens beginning in Mark chapter 6, verses 35 through 37. He says, By this time it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now stop there for a moment, okay? You, at first glance, you think, well, the disciples are concerned about these people. But you learn as you, you know, go through this and as the chapter continues on, they, they just were tired and they just wanted to go. And that happens a lot in ministry. You just get worn out. And they're saying, you know what, these people are, are tired, it's late, they're gonna, They're hungry, there's no food here, we need to send them home so they can get something to eat. Now the answer that Jesus gives is sort of amazing, conflicting, you know, as far as understanding why he did it. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages Are we to go out and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? In other words, what are you talking about? Why would you tell me to give these people something to eat? There's no food here. If I had the money to go to a neighboring village and buy enough, it would take six months wages. We don't have that. Why would you put me on the spot? Why would you tell me in front of all these people and the other disciples and so forth, why would you tell us to feed them? Because we can't. Now look at what he says in the rest of this verse, or in the next verse, in verse 38. He says, how many loaves do you have, he asked. Why don't you go and see? When they found out, they said to him, five loaves and two fish. That's what they found in the crowd. Now can you imagine as they went through the crowd asking people, do you have any food? Do you have any food? You're going to see here in a minute there were thousands of people gathered there on that hillside. It would have taken them, I don't know how long, for them to go through and finally find these five loaves and two fish that this little boy was carrying for his meal for that day. But they came up with it. And then they bring it to him. Then Jesus directed them to have the people sit down in groups on the green green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Now think about this, okay? Thousands of people. You guys organize this and have them sit down in groups of 100 people, 50 people, but keep it in multiples like that. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. All right, now, just a quick math deal here, okay? I don't know why, this is typical of the culture, why did they just count the men? I guess they're figuring it's easier to count the men and know that there's wives and children that go with them just to give us a good estimate. So they counted the men. It wasn't about 5,000. It wasn't approximately. They knew how many there were. There were 5,000 men. All right, so you add to that possible wives, single women and children, you're looking at 15 to 20,000 people gathered on that hillside. To be fed. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and they're broken up in groups, and he begins to pray, and then he begins to distribute it to the disciples. He says, Now you feed these people. And it's an astounding miracle, because the more they broke and gave all from the pieces that they had been given, then the more there was to give. I can just imagine he put this down in a basket, and it just multiplied. And then they begin to hand it out, and it wasn't just okay—a quick snack just to hold you over till you get home. You need to understand this, because it says here that they ate until they were satisfied, and then there were twelve baskets full picked up afterwards. Now there was nobody in that group of fifteen to twenty thousand people who left there hungry, because if they were, all they had to do was go with, come up and get some more out of the baskets. Nobody left hungry. This is a remarkable. Remarkable miracle. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions as we, we look at that text and we think about it. Here are a couple of questions at least that stick out to me that I'm, I'm, I'm asking and wondering about, okay? Number one is this. Why did he tell the disciples to feed the people? Why did he put them on the spot? Why did he tell them when they told him, you know, we need to let them go, we need to let them go get some food? There was no food there. Why did he tell them knowing there was no food to feed the people. here's what I think. This is just me, okay? I think that like oftentimes in ministry, I've learned over the years, and I'm sure you've learned to some degree, that you are often put in impossible situations before you can ever see God come through. You have to be put in the impossible situation. I believe that he told the disciples to feed the people knowing they couldn't, in order to prove to them that what he's about to do is beyond their ability. It's beyond their ability of what they can do. And so he is asking them to do something that's going to take them right to the end of themselves, the end of their own ability, their own resources. We can't. We absolutely can't. It's impossible. Here's the second question I have as I look at this, and that is this. Why didn't he just create the food out of nothing? In other words, he's God. He doesn't need to go find five loaves and two fishes. Why couldn't he just sit them down and say, hey, look, we're gonna, I'm going to pray and there's going to be a, a basket here that's going to overflow with food and you don't have to worry about it. Why did he send them out looking for the loaves and the fishes? Again, an opinion, okay? And take it for what it's worth. But I believe that was the key to this whole miracle because he needed to show them that I'm, I, I don't want you to look and marvel at me. I'm not out here to do another miracle that's going to cause you to look at me and marvel and say, boy, you really are God. That's always, always the result. But the point is this. I want you to learn. Here's the lesson. That whatever you have and can come up with, give it to me. And I will multiply it. It's not about me just going out and performing a miracle or talking to that person or healing that person or doing whatever it is that I'm going to do. It's about me using you to do it. He didn't want to leave the disciples out of this. He wanted to include them. And he wanted to include whatever they could come up with in a way of provision to say, okay, this is what you have to bring. This is what you have to offer. Now let me take it and bless it and multiply it. And watch what happens when I take what you present to me and multiply it. You know, I I think of this and I think back to 1975 when I had five loaves and two fish. You think, okay, i got nothing. But here's what I'll do. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. And I'll go and then I'll wait and see what you do with it. If you can take a timid, scared little boy and take him and use him, then okay. Then here I am. And this is what I want you to see. Because you have something to offer God. You may be sitting there saying to yourself, I got nothing. And it's so insignificant and so inferior and so weak that I would be ashamed. And I want you to understand that when you put a little bit into the hands of God, God multiplies it and God uses you in ways you cannot imagine. But you have to take that step. You have to bring forth the loaves and the fish. Let me share with you a couple of examples of ways in in your life that you bring to God what you have, and then he multiplies it. Now remember, it's not just one area of life. It's every area of our lives. For example, okay, you all are living in different situations and different seasons and different physical limitations and problems and so forth. We all have different situations. And we tell ourselves that because I'm in this particular time of my life and because I'm in this particular situation, I don't have anything to give you, Lord. I don't have anything for you to take and to multiply. I have nothing to offer. For example, you find yourself in a time of life where you are now a widow or a widower. And you say, man, my life has been rocked and my, my, I have nothing, Lord. I, I'm at the, my lowest point. I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to offer you. In this situation, I find myself in. God says, why don't you look at it a different way? Why don't you say, okay, my life has changed. Time, things are different in my life. But there's something that I have, five loaves and two fish. Maybe that's all I've got. But I will give it to you, and I'll watch you multiply it, and I will watch you use it. You know, we're talking about me retiring. I'm not going to get out of ministry. I will no longer be a preacher in a church, but I will always do ministry. And my loaves and fish I'll take to the Lord in some form or fashion and say, Okay, Lord, here it is. Now what do you want to do with it? And let God multiply it and show me. Whatever situation you're in in this life, why are you saying to yourself that God has done with me that I have nothing to offer? Maybe it's your age that you feel is the problem. I'm at that age in my life where I hurt, you know, I'm achy and so forth. and I just can't do what I used to do. That's fine. But what do you have to offer? You've got the loaves and the fish. You just don't want to bring them out. But when you do, God takes it and you marvel again that at this point in your life, God uses you. Because that's what God does. Some of you are young and in school. You're thinking to yourselves, yes, someday, someday maybe I'll get serious about my faith and maybe someday I'll, I'll present to God and serve God and be serious about this and so forth. Well, why not now? Why not now? Why are you waiting? You've got loaves and fish you probably don't know about. You've got people that you could interact with in life that God would take you to and use you in ways you never dreamed possible. But uh, if you don't get past this mentality that I don't have anything to give, then you'll never do anything. Maybe you're physically handicapped. We just saw a prime example of this. Don't tell me. (laughs) You know, you've got no excuse now. Uneducated. I just am not smart enough. I don't have the education. I can't. You know what? Stop thinking of the ministry being something that's going to require a, a seminary degree. Start thinking in terms, okay, Lord, here are my loaves and my fish. Now what can you do with what I give you? And let God determine how it's used and where it's used and so forth. But if you never offer it, if you never present it, then nothing ever changes. When we were living over in the Duncanville and the Soto area, when we were in seminary, we went to Dallas Seminary. So all of you know. This was back in the 80s, and uh, we were working in a church there um, in Duncanville in DeSoto, I'm sorry, Desoto. But there was a missionary family there, and she was oh gosh, she was up in her 60s or 70s. Her father was near uh, 90, in his 90s pushing toward 100, and he was in a nursing home. And he had always been a pastor. He had pastored all of his life until he retired, and then his health began to fail, and now he's in a wheelchair and in a nursing home. And his his daughter, Alice, would often bring her father to church. And he would just, you know, like TJ, sit in his wheelchair and just praise the Lord with us there as we worship together. But here's here's what I want you to see. This man was a pastor all of his life, and God used him, and God blessed his ministry in in so many ways. And then he goes through that season of life where he is physically handicapped, elderly and weak, and in a nursing home. And it's very easy, see, in a situation like that to say to, to God, I've got nothing to give you anymore. Nothing. But this man didn't, because this man took it upon himself to start a Bible study there in his nursing home. And he started the Bible study and began to minister to the people there in the, in the nursing home. He'd take his wheelchair and he'd heal himself down to their, their rooms each and every day and he'd pray with them. He'd love on them. He'd minister to them. He was like he became their pastor until the day that he died. Whatever situation that you're in in life, don't let that stop you from serving God and don't let that stop you from being blessed by God when you present to God your loaves and your fish. Because God can take it and use it in ways you never, ever imagine. It's going to take faith. It really will. It'll take faith. It'll take you believing that God can do it. It'll take you believing that God will do it. It'll take you believing that it doesn't depend on you. It is not about what you bring to God. It's just that you bring something to God to say, Lord, here it is, multiply it. Because in the end, it's all about what God does. Here's another area, talking about presenting your loaves and fish and God multiplying it. The area of your money. That's a big one. There's so many verses in the Bible that talk about us as, believer, us as believers in, the, in our money and the way we deal with it. When it comes to giving, let's talk about that for a moment, Okay? That's always a popular subject from the pulpit. Everybody loves it when the pastor talks about that. But here we go. Let's say, for example, you have been telling yourself all of these years, I don't make as much money as so-and-so, and and I don't have the money to give like so-and-so. I would be ashamed to give what pittance I have to give. So I don't give. I don't have anything. Sometimes we get in our, in our minds that the people that give are the people that have money and lots of it, so they have money to spare. but you misunderstand this principle that in the Bible, God never praised anybody who gave out of what they had to spare he 's standing at the temple one day with his disciples, and all of these Pharisees are dropping money into these copper tins, and when it did, it made a tremendous amount of, of noise. And trumpets would even sound. And they were praised for their giving. And this little widow walks up and drops two pennies in. And and Jesus told his disciples she gave way more than they did because she gave all she had. And they gave out of their excess. You see, God is not looking at this and saying to you and me, if you have tons of money, then you need to give some to the Lord. Give some to missions. Give some to people in need. Give some to your church. No, he's not saying that. He's saying everybody in here has got two, five loaves and two fish. You've got something. I have blessed you. And it's your responsibility to, to present back to me a portion of that and watch what I do with it. See, this is the beauty of the church. The church comes together and collectively we pull our resources together and things get done. But when we're convinced that our little bit of money won't make a difference, you're misunderstanding the point of multiplication. Because a little bit, when it's put into the hands of God, is multiplied and it becomes a lot. You've got to learn that in regards to your money. Start giving something. You'll be amazed at how God will use it. But here's what the thing here's the beauty of it: you'll be amazed at what God does in you. He really will, and you'll step. You know, years from, from now, you'll look back and you'll, you'll wonder uh, with amazement, how did that ever happen? How did I ever get to the point where I was even able to give like that? But you were because God takes the little bit and he blesses it and he multiplies it. One other example of what I'm talking about is giving your loaves and fish when, in relation to your gifts and abilities giving it in relation to your gifts and abilities. Everybody has some gift or ability. You know this from just being a human being. You've got certain abilities, things you can do, things you can present to the Lord to be used to help people. But you also, now that you're a believer, have spiritual gifts that God has given to you that you are able to use. But here again, here's what we do, see. We sit back as Christians and we tell ourselves, I've got nothing, God said, yeah, you've got at least five loaves and two fish, and are you going to give them or not? Are you going to put forth what you have and let me multiply it? And until you make that decision, you'll be still, still be sitting here ten years from now saying to yourself, I'm a nobody, I've got nothing, I have nothing to give God, therefore I'll just sit and soak and won't do anything. This is a true story. I want you to listen to it. It's going to take a few minutes, but just listen, okay? says there was a pastor over in England. His name was Francis Dixon. He is a great Baptist preacher and great Bible teacher. Francis Dixon had a man in his church named Peter English. I'm sorry, a man in his church named Peter. Baptist churches don't have a staff, but this man was almost a staff member. They asked Peter to give his testimony one day, and here's what he said. Peter stood up behind the pulpit and he said, Folks, I want to tell you how I was saved. I was stationed with the Royal Navy in Sydney, Australia, and was walking down George Street in Sydney one day, and out of nowhere came a little white-haired man. He stopped me on the street and he said to me, he said, Excuse me, sir, but I would ask you a question. I hope it won't offend you, but I, tell me, sir, if you were to die today, where would you be in eternity? The Bible says it will be either heaven or hell. And that's all I really have to ask you, sir. God bless you. Toodaloo. And he was gone. Peter said, boy, that question came at me like an arrow right out of heaven to me. And he said, for six months I was disturbed. I didn't know what to do. I, we would call that being under conviction. He said finally, we sailed back to England, and I had one Christian friend, and I sought him out, and that Christian friend led me to Christ, all because of what that little old man said. Now listen. Now in that church in which Francis Dixon was pastor, they had what we call a revival meeting. A part of the team a part of the team was a young man whose name was Noel. Noel Noel was and they asked Noel to give his testimony, so Noel stood up and he said, Folks, He said, I want to tell you how I was saved. I lived for a period of time in a beautiful Australian city of Sydney. And he said, I was walking down George Street one day when out of the nowhere came a little white-haired man. He stopped me on the street and he said, excuse me, sir, I would like to ask you a question. I hope you won't be offended, but uh, tell me, sir, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? Because the Bible says it will either be in heaven or in hell. Think about that, sir. That's all. God bless you. Toodaloo. And Noel said, I knew enough about the gospel to get saved. I went to a a house where I was staying in Australia, and that afternoon I got down on my knees, and I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. When the service was over, Peter went up to Noel, and he said, Noel, you have my testimony. It happened to me just like that the little old white-haired man on George Street in Sydney, and he begins to tell him the same story. Now, the pastor overheard this, and it was not long after that. He was preaching in the southern Australia city of Adelaide. And he was impressed to tell the story about the two men in his church and the little old man on George Street. When he started telling the story, a man began to wave his hand in the air. Now, we don't do that in Baptist churches, so finally he got my attention, and I said to him, Mister, do you have something you want to say? He said, yes, sir, I do. I want to tell you how I was saved. I was walking down George Street in Sydney one day when out of nowhere a little white-haired man, and the story was exactly the same as all the rest. Now, of course, when he got back to his church in England... He knew he had a story. He told that story to his whole church, and a young woman came up to him and said, Pastor, I'm another one. I was walking down George Street in Sydney, and out of nowhere came a little white-haired man that told the same story. Francis Dixon preached at the Keswick meeting for deeper life. Some of you may know about the meeting in the northwestern part of England. He told the story of an aged, an aged man who came up to him and said, Sir, I'm another. And I was walking down George Street in Sydney. Same story. Francis Dixon preached all over the world. He was preaching to some missionaries in India. They asked him to speak on personal evangelism. And he did, and he told the story. And after the service, a middle-aged woman missionary came up to him and said, Sir, I was another. I was walking down that street, and the man did that to me as well. He told that story on the island of Jamaica, and on his way home, the eighth person came up to him and said, Sir, I am another. I was walking down that same street. Now, the man who gave Roy Fish this story, a godly layman in Oklahoma City, a man named Gene Warr, was telling this story to a group of chaplains in Fort Benning, Georgia, and one of those chaplains raised his hand and he said, Mr. War, he said, let me tell you how I became a Christian. I was walking down George Street in Sydney, and the story was the same. Well, Francis Dixon, the British pastor, said, oh, how I wanted to see the little white-haired man so, I made sure that Sydney was on my itinerary next time I went to Australia, and sometime later he did. He went to Australia. He said I got there, and I did not know what to do, so I got on the plane on the phone and I called a Christian friend and said to him, "Have you ever heard of a little old white-haired man who stands on the corner of George Street and asks people when they come by if they're going to spend eternity when they die. Do you know who that is? He said, sure. He said, I know who he is. His name is Mr. Jenner. Mr. Jenner, you know him? Oh, most of us know him. He said, he doesn't get out on the street much anymore. He's of that age where he has to stay in. He's not doing too well physically. Do you know where he lives? He said, well, sure, I can take you right to his home. So the two of them went to Mr. Jenner's home, says we knocked on the door. The introductions were made, and Francis Dixon told that little old man about all of those who had come to Christ through his pungent word of warning and witness. The dear little man broke down and wept. He said, sir, he said, I have shared the gospel with thousands of people on George Street in Sydney. And this is the first time in my life that I ever heard of anybody who came to Christ through my witness. Now guys, think about this, okay? Mr. Jenner, God asks, what do you have to offer me? Nothing. I got nothing, Lord, but two fish and five loaves. I can stand on the corner and I can ask people if they know where they're going when they die. I can't preach. I can't teach. But God, I'll do that faithfully without ever knowing what happens. But I'll do it. And I'll trust you to multiply that. You know, I think about this and I think someday if he isn't already there, this little old man is going to stand before God. And all of these people will be getting their rewards and accolades for all the great sermons and all the great missions work and all the things they've done. And this one little man will step forward. There will be thousands of people whose lives are touched because of him. Then you ask yourself this, How would life be different if Mr. Jenner told himself, I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm just going to sit in church and soak up sermons and praise the Lord and do nothing because nothing that I have is of any significance. God help us not to do that. Everybody in here has five loaves and two fish. And in, in, when you look at the need, that doesn't look like much. It doesn't add up. But you've got to learn the principle, the lesson of the sermon, of the miracle. And when you put that into the hands of God, God will multiply it in ways you never thought possible. You never imagined. But until you take that first step, you'll still be sitting there saying, I got nothing. Don't do that to God. God. And don't do it to the people whose lives will be changed because you were faithful to God to do what you were called to do. Do what God is leading you to do and trust that God will bring about the results. Just be faithful. If you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Christ, I want to read a couple of verses to you and we'll bring this to a close. In Acts chapter 13, Here's what it says in verses 38 and 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Look at the verse. It's through Jesus that you're redeemed. Through Jesus that you're forgiven. It's His blood that was shed for you to pay for your sins, and you could never ever acquire that through any good deeds of keeping the law. It's only through Him. At a point in time, you have to come to the conclusion that Jesus died for you, and you have to put your faith in Him. I pray that that's sooner than later. But that decision is up to you. I want to help you in any way that I can to help you to see that, to understand that. So if I can help you, please feel free to call on me because I will. But for right now, just understand that God loves you, that Jesus Christ died for you, and that at some point you're going to have to trust him. You're going to have to believe it and accept it. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you this morning, Lord. We are overwhelmed with the reality that uh, we offer up so many excuses, so many reasons why we can't serve. We can't minister. We can't do anything because we think we have nothing to give. But Lord, help us to learn the lesson of the loaves. Father, that when we put our little bit, our insignificant amount of whatever it may be, our money, our talents, our time, our situation, our lives. Father, when we put that into your hands, you multiply it in ways we cannot imagine. And someday we'll all stand before you and we'll all rejoice together over what's been done with all the little things that we have pulled together to serve you. Bless us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.